So sometimes pain can start from an actual injury, right? So it can, if it can begin with like a broken foot and then your, what happens is your brain starts to develop what's called these conditioned responses. Like it learns that when I step down, I feel pain. I step down, I feel pain. And so then it starts to kind of take on a course of its own based on your brain's habits and patterns, right? So, you know, holding your, your child may have kind of been that initial Kickstarter, but then the learned responses start to kick in that your brain has. So unwinding the way that works and, and a big part of it is sitting with the discomfort. So that sensation is there. I feel it, but it's not alarming. Nothing's terrible is happening. I'm feeling that and I can tolerate that because it's just a sensation. Greetings, hello, good day, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for joining True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. Now, True Hope Canada is a mind and body based supplement company that is dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non invasive nutritional means. Our flagship product, Empower Plus, is one of the most studied micronutrients on the planet. So go to truehopecanada.com to learn more about it. Today, I welcome Annie Miller to the show. Now, Annie is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. She is the owner and founder of D.C. Metro Sleep and Psychotherapy. Annie specializes in working with sleep disorders, chronic pain and trauma. Annie uses a variety of evidence-based techniques, including CBTI for insomnia, EMDR for trauma, CBT for anxiety disorders and PRT, which is pain reprocessing therapy for chronic pain. Annie received her BA from the University of Pennsylvania and her MSW from the University of Chicago. Annie is a licensed clinical social worker in Maryland, the District of Columbia and Virginia. Today on the show, we are going to be discussing the connection between sleep issues, pain and trauma. Enjoy the show. Okay. Good morning, Annie. Welcome to True Hope Cast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Very interested to learn about what it is that you do, sleep, psychotherapy, trauma, pain, huge, big topics. But how are you today? What is going well? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really happy to chat with you. Um, and so I'm in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area, and it's beautiful and actually not hot um, here today, which is a rare occurrence for you know mid-August. So I'm really pleased about that. And that's going really well. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it's nice to have the weather that's not too hot, not too cold. And you know, it's nice to get those little those little breaks within the year when definitely when you're expecting super hot weather, you know, it's a nice little relief. For sure. Yeah. So why don't you kick us off with a little little background on you what it is that you do who are you like i'd love to just get that information please sure so yeah my name is annie and i'm a therapist so i'm actually a clinical social worker um and i am licensed as a therapist um i run a small group practice private practice in um right outside washington dc and our practice focuses primarily on treating insomnia, chronic pain, and trauma through psychotherapy um, and therapy-based strategies. Great. It's called DC Metro Sleep and Psychotherapy, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And how, where did this clinic, how did it start? 
like i mean it's an interesting connection insomnia chronic pain people and trauma people might not connect those things and also throwing psychotherapy in there i think most people when they think about going somewhere to sort their sleep out they might be getting something like maybe a new bed or maybe some supplements or you know some other things to help them sleep so how do we connect insomnia pain and trauma like what comes first like how do you how do most people come in and and explain and display the issues that they're experiencing yeah no this is a good question and it's a really good point um that a lot of times people are seeking a product or a you know medical treatment for you know particularly for both pain and sleep um and so you know, we really focus on evidence-based treatments. So treatments that are proven, you know, have some research behind them that are shown to work um, for these, you know, for these conditions that people are dealing with. Um, and just a little bit about it. Um, so I started out doing regular talk therapy, like a lot of other therapists do. And I, um, you know, I had a struggle with chronic pain myself. And so part of this is me learning how this all works through a little trial and error myself. Um, I also, I think it's helpful to share this. I, I come from a family of poor sleepers. So <laughs> um, we, I, I've known and been around poor sleepers. And um, so, you know, this stuff is kind of part of, has been part of my life. And so when I discovered these treatments that are not medicine and not, you know, medical model based, it was, it was like amazing, you know, and, and so now I'm really, really passionate about treating these things through therapy because it can, it can really work. And so back to your other question about, well, what's the kind of relationship between these things? And the way that I see it is it's all based on the brain. Um, so it's how our brain is working. And sometimes the symptom of insomnia shows up, for instance, um, as it's a symptom of the overactive nervous system response. So to be more specific, the brain being stuck in that fight or flight response in stress mode um, and insomnia and chronic pain are just some of the ways that that shows up, um, you know, physically in our body. Interesting. What are some of the like go-tos when it comes to like, um, pharmaceutical medication, if somebody has got sleep issues? Cause I think a lot of people, I think most people, unfortunately are going to go to their doctor if they've got sleep problems or pain or trauma. Yeah. Um, which you no, know, it can be very helpful with that situation. But when we're talking about like the, the practice that you have and you're working with psychotherapy and you're working with kind of getting to the, to, mm -hmm. to the root cause of these issues, because, you know, if, as you say, like if somebody is constantly engaged in their sympathetic fight or flight nervous system, because of, you know, there's so many different factors that might um, engage, engage that constant kind of response. And even if you were to take really good quality, supplements you're not really getting to the root cause of that you might be assisting your body to come out of that into a rest and digest situation for a period of time but there's underlying things happening in primarily your brain that are causing you to get into that fight or flight 
and that you know if you're in a stress response and you think you're going to be eaten by a lion there's no way your body's going to put you in a state for good quality sleep but what are the like if most people go to the doctor with sleep issues what are like the some of the primary medications that that, that, that people get put on like is like step one sure no and i just i want to you know, kind of acknowledge how like right on you are is, and I appreciate that because I think not that many people really understand that the supplements and medications, they can really help. They can, and especially on a temporary basis and they're amazing, but it, it isn't going to fix the mechanism that's happening in the brain. And then, and so we do need to kind of retrain that from a therapy behavioral based perspective, because if we don't, it's going to keep happening. And while the medication does and, you know, supplements, they do really help. There's still this missing piece for a lot of people. Um, but you had asked what kind of medications are people taking um, for sleep? It's There's a whole range of things out there. You know, typically people do things like Ambien um, and, you know, sometimes people take things like Xanax. You know, there's a, a really common one that we see here is, is Trazodone. Um, you know, there's a whole range of things out there. And again, those things can help. Um, but what I find the most often is that people, they help initially or not at all sometimes, but okay. if they help, they help initially. And then people kind of start to get back into their old habits and, and are, you know, the, the stress response is overriding the medication or supplement. And most people who come and see you, is it more common that they have actually gone through that type of um, experience with the medications before they come and see you and they've recognized that it maybe doesn't work for them or it doesn't do what it used to do? Or are people coming to you who, um, you know, like the idea of using therapy as well? It's just it doesn't seem super common to me that people would be like, oh, I've got sleep issues, chronic pain and trauma. Maybe I should go and see a psychotherapist to sort those things out. That doesn't sound, I mean, I, I do because I, I, you know, I, I feel like that that's where I am in my life now. I'd like to look at th those type of therapies that are going to get to the, to the to the root cause, and a practitioner like yourself are going to understand like the the full rounded effects of like what is going to influence my sleep. So, most people coming through your door, have they experienced this like conventional approach first, and then they're coming to you for I don't know better help. Yeah, you know, um, often that's the case, um, particularly when it comes to pain. I, I don't see very many people trying a therapeutic-based um, approach first. So I would say almost all the time with chronic pain, people have been through the ringer with it and, and they've tried everything. With sleep, you know, it's a big range. Um, most people have tried something medically. Um, they've gone to the doctor. Um, they maybe they've done a sleep study, you know, there's a whole range of things. Maybe some people don't want to take sleep medication. Um, but I mean, I have people who've had, you know, sleep problems since getting COVID for instance, and it's been like, you know, six months, or I have had people who've, you know, had sleep problems for 30 years. So it's, it depends on the person. Um, more and more people are understanding the therapy I use for insomnia called CBT for insomnia. And so more and more people are doing, you know, learning about that. And I think that's good. And that's part of why I like talking to people about it is because it's so helpful to know what's out there. And with this kind of like trifecta of sleep, chronic pain and trauma, um, is the goal to work 
work with that trauma to improve sleep to reduce the pain is that kind of the if i miss that if i if i mix that up or is it different for different people so um you know some people are coming in with just insomnia right and so we start by working on just the insomnia um and through that process, getting to know them a little bit better, we uncover, well, actually there's a lot of, you know, historical trauma in there um, that would be helpful to work on. So, you know, typically I think people come in with one area of focus to work on and thinking about it, you know, they, they kind of see one thing as the biggest issue or the biggest obstacle that they're dealing with. And then, you know, some people only have that one thing. I see most commonly that there's definitely these overlaps um, with other areas, but, you know, it just, it depends. It depends on the person. And when, when someone's coming in with any kind of sleep related problem, I like to fo focus on that first, um, the sleep first, because it's, more shorter term, we can, I think we, you can get sleep in a better place more quickly um, than you can some of the other things. And so I, I tip, that's my go-to is to start working on the sleep. Once sleep is a little better, it's easier to focus on the other things. When people start putting your recommendations or, or, or the practices that you recommend them to take home, because obviously they're coming to the clinic with you and, you know, they're with you and, you know, you're discussing things, but then they go home and they're spending a significant amount of time away from you, um, which, you know, for some people can be difficult to get motivated, motivated at home when you're surrounded by, you know, all the familiar things that, you know, make us behave in predictable ways, I suppose. Is it, um, do people find it difficult to take those practices home or is it like a, you know, is it, is it a constant having to like really work with you on like a frequent basis to, really start implementing these behavioral changes because we know like humans aren't brilliant at changing those like learnt behaviors and when we're talking about something like long-term pain or insomnia or trauma you know we're talking about things that have been within someone's life for decades in some cases yeah. so that's really hard to crack through that like really solidified um neural network of you know of, of thoughts feelings and behaviors that that lead to these traumatic this trauma and this pain and then ultimately like a big lack of sleep and we obviously know a lack of good quality sleep is going to have a large effect on pretty much every system in your body so do people find it difficult to, to make these changes and when they do start to make the changes on a consistent basis do they find results quickly so from the sleep perspective um, it's, it's actually easier because of the way the therapy is set up. So it's, it's kind of like a program. So what I have them do is start with a sleep diary. So they're tracking their sleep. Um, so like th that is an, a way for them to be accountable actually. Um, and generally speaking, you know, I don't, in, outside of the CBT for insomnia, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of sleep tracking because I think it calls attention to sleep. It puts your focus on it sometimes in a negative way. And that can be counterproductive. But for the purposes of what we're doing, and I've, I have the sleep diaries set up a certain way so they can't really focus on it or it's just they do it and it's they don't see the information. Um, but that creates some accountability. Um, 
So plus it's, it's very structured, you know, you do this, you do that. And, you know, there's kind of a step-by-step process to, um, or a set of rules and guidelines to follow. And so most people, you know, are able to follow it to some degree. There's things that are, some things are harder than others for people to follow, but generally speaking, this kind of therapy is actually relatively straightforward to follow. It's a habit change. So there's resistance, you know, we face resistance trying something new that we don't feel great about sometimes, but, um, for like many, many people, it's actually pretty straightforward. That's great. And I, I feel that most people who probably come through your door and, um, work with you, they're pretty self-motivated to make changes and, and to do that because you say like a lot of them have gone through a conventional system and they recognize that that's not really worked for them and they yeah. really genuinely want to sleep better and have less pain and and you know work through the traumatic events that they might not necessarily consciously connect with those issues so it probably works well that you know people are l- really looking to change they're self-motivated and you know it's now's the now's the time for them to start making these changes that are going to lead to those those outcomes that they're looking for when you talk about tracking sleep what what type of things are you looking at what's the what, what information are you looking for there so i'm looking at um how long it's taking them to fall asleep so um that's that's what we call it sleep latency so the amount of time it takes from when you get in bed to when you're falling asleep And it's just an estimate that people are making because we never really know how long that takes. It's based on like what we think is happening. Um, You know, how much they're awake in the middle of the night. um, And, you know, if they're waking up early in the morning, let's say earlier than they intend to. But I also am interested in overall, like one of the big things that we're tracking is how much time are they spending in bed? Because we don't want to be spending time in bed unless we're asleep. So that's very clear with us. Um, So that's a big one. And then overall, just what their habits look like. So when they do wake up, what do they do? Do they lie there and try to sleep? Do they get up? Um, What are, what's their typical routine around sleep looking like? What do you think about like the sleep apps and smartwatches and things like that? And the information from there, is there, is there any, is there any helpful information with that that we can take? You know, um, generally I recommend not using it for sleep. Um, and you know, they're, they're okay at tracking sleep. Um, they're, you know, they have give you a, a general picture, but they can't really, f- you know, they're, they're tracking your heart rate. They're not looking at what's going on in your brain. You know, if you go to a sleep lab, it's a whole different setup. <laughs> you know, you, you have, they're really tracking it and they can really see at a sleep lab. So um, I think that what I've seen with, with sleep trackers is sometimes people will wear their, you know, smartwatch to bed and then, you know, kind of obsess about the data and, oh, did I get this? It's saying that I didn't get this. And that kind of creates its own <laughs> issue actually. Yeah. Um, so they're great at heart rate movement and, and there's some amazing things about them, but overall I find them more unhelpful when it comes to sleep. Yeah. I think they can become, yeah, way just, just putting way too much focus and energy on that information. As you say, like it's just trying to tracking heart rate and that varies between individuals and it's not super, super accurate when it comes to the 
like the, the full data that you would get, let's say in the morning. Um, I used to, I used to have one and I, I, I got like that very, very quickly. I was like you know, really into the app, looking at the, the ups and downs. And I was just like, I didn't like the idea of my, this watch being on me talking to my phone all night while I'm trying to sleep, you know, like I, I don't know the yeah. ins and outs of that connectivity and how that, you know, that messes with the frequency of like what is necessary for my brain to sleep. I'm not quite sure about that. I don't know, but I just didn't like the idea of this watch being kind of like on me, on my person, um, always on and like, you know, go, I, did, I didn't like the idea of that to be honest, but, um, yeah. is, is it common for psychotherapists to work with sleep or do you have kind of like a unique approach to, you know, what you're doing in your practice? That's a good question too. Um, there's a, a field, um, and it's, it's new. So there aren't that many people working in this field, but it's called, um, behavioral sleep medicine. So it's, it's actually, um, I'm a social worker, but there's more psychologists who are in that field than any other type of provider. Um, but, but more and more social workers, I mean, I think, you know, anyone who experiences like if, as a therapist, when you see someone change and you can see it pretty quickly, it's, it's amazing. And, and you feel like, oh my gosh, I can really impact people in this amazing way. And so it, it's growing, it's a growing field because CBT for insomnia is a very highly researched um, therapy and the outcomes are really positive. So like 70 to 80% of people get better which is really amazing. Wow. So is it really common? No, it's, it still needs, we need more people doing this. Um, but you know, there's places like the VA, for instance, that are starting to, to really use CBTI, um, and other kind of big, uh, agencies that are starting to implement this more. So, and really roll out training, um, for this, but it's still, you know, not that widely known. With the with the pain issues that people come mm -hmm. in, is there are there like is there a common type of pain in like a in a part of the body or, or the actual pain itself? Whether that's like I kind of I kind of think of like pain and discomfort on different scales rather than like a scale of pain. I feel like mm -hmm. I've got this like discomfort pain, like how much mind discomfort, and then and then pain's a different section for me. Um, but are people coming in with like, like are there patterns of the, the pain that people are coming in with? And is that like connected to insomnia in, in some kind of way? Um, I mean, I see them occur together really, really frequently. Um, but with pain, um, I think probably the most common type of pain I see is back pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know from a statistical standpoint, what, you know, um, terms of like chronic pain, what most people are suffering with, but I would say back pain, migraines for sure, um, is a big one. And then like neck, shoulder pain, like that kind of like, you know, overuse pain. Um, those are probably the most common things that I see. Um, but there are others. I mean, you know, some of the therapy that I use for chronic pain is called pain reprocessing therapy. And I think about also symptoms like GI issues, for instance, 
or, you know, like stomach pain or even other types of GI issues as being related, all related to the same, um, you know, kind of underlying issue that the brain is experiencing, right? So, or even something like fatigue, unexplained fatigue. So if someone comes in with a symptom like that, like I'm looking at it in the same way. And I, you know, as long as they've ruled out, you know, they've, they've been through testing and they've ruled out other problems. Um, and in some cases, you know, from a pain standpoint, if they have like, um, like a bulging disc or something like that, I see that differently because typically bulging discs don't cause pain, but <laughs> they're being treated for it. Right. So, um, it depends on the diagnosis. We, you know, um, we have to kind of have to look at it critically. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Everyone's going to be different. And mm -hmm. as you say, everyone's, um, everyone's perspective on their own pain can be very different from other people. I think that we also like learn to deal with quite a large amount of discomfort or pain that we just end up kind of like dealing with. And that's just like our normal and we get used to it. And yeah. um, so that can really kind of distort how bad something might be for somebody. Are there any complementary like practices or other therapies that you, that you work closely with, or you might recommend somebody try along with the, the therapies that you're going with, like chiropractic or acupuncture, for example, massage. Do, do, do you refer people out to these type of practices? Um, I do sometimes. Yeah. And, um, I like to work with providers that really understand what I'm doing. Um, so like, for instance, in, in the DC area, there's some great physical therapists who really understand the brain perspective and understand how the, the role the, the brain and the nervous system play in, the, in, you know, kind of creating and perpetuating pain. So I think any one of those type of providers can be complementary if they see it the same way. So let's say we have a provider like that who doesn't see it the same way and they kind of, you know, feel around in someone's back and they're like, uh-oh, this looks bad. Yeah. That's going to kind of counteract what I'm trying to work on. So I want to be mindful. I want to connect with them and make sure, hey, look, do we do you see it this way? Um, because I have actually had that happen <laughs> with, with clients I'm working with. And the whole goal of pain reprocessing therapy or PRT is to separate fear from the physical sensation. And if someone's reinforcing that, it's going to be unhelpful. So it, um, I think you kind of understand what I'm saying. As long as, as long as they're like-minded, yes, absolutely. It can be helpful. Yeah, that's great. I, th I think one of the greatest things for, I mean, I'm, I'm 38 now and I didn't really have a relationship with pain rather than like, you know, sock injuries, but okay. I'm 38 now. I've got two small kids and like the, the, my first kid is three, he's three now, but he like messed my back up. My body was uh -huh. not used to carrying a child around and I was probably quite unconscious because I was carrying him on one side mm -hmm. and now and like for a good good five six months my like back would be in you know in bits in quite a lot of discomfort and I'd have to do quite a, a lot of work to, to to help that out you know like warm baths and stretching but one of the best things that I did for it was using my meditative practice to actually mm -hmm. just like sit and like rather than really wanting the pain to like go away or do something to just get rid of it. I was kind of talking to it and connecting with it and really like feeling it. 
I, I definitely do that a lot when I'm in bed and I'm asleep and I'm like still and it's dark and I can, you know, I've got the, the, the sensory overload of like the world is not quite mm -hmm. there. And I feel the pain and it's, it's very interesting because you, once you put your energy into something like that, I genuinely feel like you can make a different, have a different relationship and a different connection with what that pain means to you. Cause I, yes. I, I think it's all messages. I think that there's, you know, my, my back pain is a connection that I need to be more aware of my posture. I need to be more aware of like, you know, how I'm holding my shoulders back and I'm standing up at my desk today, you know, and I'm trying to stand up straight and, I think they're all just like little messages here. And I just wonder, like, when you speak to um, your clients about pain, what's the type of approach you have to it? Because, like, you know, if you're going to go to, I just want to say, a bad chiropractor, all they want to do is just try and manipulate you to just, like, relieve some of that pressure to reduce the pain a little bit, um, which, you know, might be very helpful for somebody who's in significant discomfort. But at the end of the day, like, it's a band-aid. That pain's coming back because someone's going back into the car they're going back to their office. They're going to sit down on the sofa. They're going to do all the things that created that pain in the first place. And it's just not, you're not creating an understanding of why that pain is there and what that pain means. So what's the type of approach you have with your clients when it comes to understanding their own pain? Yeah. Um, no, it's, a, it's, this is a good point. And I, I really appreciate what you just said, because you kind of nailed it. <laughs> um, it's, that's what it, you know, that's what perpetuates pain. So sometimes pain can start from an actual injury, right? So it can, if it can begin with like a broken foot and then your, what happens is your brain starts to develop what's called these conditioned responses. Like it learns that when I step down, I feel pain. I step down, I feel pain. And so then it starts to kind of take on a course of its own based on your brain's habits and patterns, right? So you know, holding your, your child may have kind of been that initial Kickstarter, but then the learned responses start to kick in that your brain has. So unwinding the way that works and, and a big part of it is sitting with the discomfort. So that sensation is there. I feel it, but it's not alarming. Nothing's terrible is happening. I'm feeling that and I can tolerate that because it's just a sensation. It's not dangerous. And so that fact and that, you know, kind of point is a big overarching theme in this pain reprocessing therapy. Yeah. And we have these beautiful, when you look at the, the biology of the body, you know, it's all pathways, it's all communication, whether that's, um, within your cells, using hormones, you, you using neurotransmitters, using electricity, using chemicals. And if I've got pain in my lower back, you know, that's just like that message traveling up all the way up through my you know, peripheral nervous system to my central nervous system, communicating with the brain, letting me know that, you know, I need to put some attention to that area. And I yeah. think if we have a, a bit more of an understanding of, yeah, like what that pain is, how it's getting to my brain, like that, I just think we can just start creating a softer, more compassionate understanding about like what's actually going on in your body. And yeah, the fact that we like go straight for, painkillers or anti-inflammatories or we like you know just do as much as we can to just like ignore it or to just like take it away right away yeah, yeah it's not the it's just not going to have a long there's not going to be no long-term benefits of, of that type of approach and that's why i'm so thankful that you know practices like yours and um therapies like yours are out there you know supporting people to get them back to kind of connecting and understanding their own brain and body a little bit better and you know how they can serve themselves um 
going forward in many different aspects of their lives you know if you start getting connected more of your mind and your body and you start understanding that you're very powerful then you can you can do many different things and you just got this bigger connection with yourself where you are in the world and, and what you can do and i think i think that's only going to benefit people um going forward i've got a question about like myths about sleep like what are people misunderstanding yeah. about like sleep and what it means i've got an example of um so i'm a holistic nutritionist and I, you know i did that for mm -hmm. many years before i started working with true hope and one of my questions based around sleep was you know like how how quickly do you does it take for you to fall asleep? You know, as we spoke about before, you know, that's an important question. And a lot of people who are coming to me with pain and inflammation, they were telling me, oh, my sleep's awesome. I like lie down on the bed and I, I'm, I pass out like immediately. And I think a lot of people, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. This is just my understanding of it. But people associate that with having a good sleep pattern. Mm -hmm. I understand like there should be this period of maybe like five to 15 minutes where we actually like fall asleep rather than just like passing out through exhaustion. I'm sure there's a genetic component. Some people just like have the ability to just kind of pass out. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's a big difference between like falling asleep and then just like crashing out. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, so part of the therapy that I do for sleep is, so there's a, a piece of it that's um, called sleep restriction. So we're actually restricting sleep to some degree um, to, in order to make people feel very sleepy. So at the beginning of therapy, that's the goal is to fall asleep faster for some people. I mean, I have people who it takes them two hours, you know, they come in and they're up for two hours just lying there. And um, so what, what we say is really anything under 20 minutes is our goal. So if it's between five and 15 minutes, that's great. I'm not concerned if someone's falling asleep really fast. I would, I would be interested to see how tired are they during the day. So if this person's really, really tired and sleepy all day, then, you know, that's another piece that we would look at if they're fine all day or, you know, reporting that they're fine and they're falling asleep that quickly, well, it's not too much of a concern. Um, but you had asked, you know, what are we getting wrong about sleep? And there's, there's a bunch of these that may surprise you that I think maybe will be helpful for people. I'm hoping they will be. Um, but this whole eight hours thing is really a big myth that everybody needs eight hours and you as a, a holistic nutritionist can probably relate to the analogy I use for this, which is, it's like saying every single person needs to be on the same diet, right? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't work. That's not the way we're not all the ex exact same. So generally most people need between six and nine hours. Some people really do great with six hours. That's what their body needs. Um, there are short sleepers who need less than six. And those are, you know, people who typically have this genetic kind of short sleep um, condition and, but it's not bad, that's what their body needs. So it's more about listening to your body rather than trying to meet a goal. Um, so that's one thing. And generally the idea that more sleep is better over, you know, overall, um, tends to be the way people see it. So if I'm tired, I'll just get in bed early. But the problem with that is it creates this 
like inconsistent sleep patterns. Either I'll sleep, get in bed early or just try to sleep late. I'm just trying to sleep when I can. But if we have more consistency, so I go to bed at a certain time or later and getting up at the same time every day, no matter what, is more helpful for regulating sleep than just trying to sleep when you can. Um, the other thing that I think people focus on, and it is, it's so common to, to read about this, is that lack of sleep causes so many issues. And so we know that not sleeping well is, is not good. We feel tired, but we don't want to start to associate, oh no, if I don't sleep, then all this bad stuff is going to happen, right? Because how do you really separate stress from sleep and anxiety from sleep? If you're, you know, it's really hard to do that. So oftentimes the worry about sleep just exacerbates the whole problem. And so it's not the, it's often not the sleep alone in isolation. It's all like the worrying and the, the emphasis we're putting on it. I need it to look this way. Because as you know, you have two young kids, right? New parents aren't, you know, kind of having heart attacks all the time or all the scary things that we read about. It's if we have short-term sleep loss, because that's what happens with new parents, right? It's you're tired. It's not fun. You feel foggy, yeah. <laughs> but you're not having the, typically you're not, a, you're not like afraid of not sleeping in the same way because you're just desperate for it. Um, no, no, that makes total sense because, you know, you're, I also feel like, you know, when you're about to become a new parent, your body recognizes that's going to happen and it's going to start, you know, biochemically changing, changing things for you. So you can get through that time, but yeah, like, especially the first, the first six months to a year of, you know, new kids is absolutely wild. And, and then once you get through that bit and you can reflect on the fact that you've achieved, accomplished so much and you've kept this human alive for 12 <laughs> yeah. months, you can be like, oh my gosh, I can do so much on quite little sleep and you can actually, you know, do quite a bit, but it's obviously, you know, I like to think of these things, it's just going to be a phase and then, you know, th things mm -hmm. will change because sleep is very, very important to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's serious business, like having young kids and like that whole sleep deprivation thing. And do you have a lot of like new parents that, that, that come in and like really worried about the, the fact that their whole sleep routine is completely fl flipped upside down? Yes, that is, it's a common time um, for people, you know, to, to experience sleep issues is, you know, parenthood. Um, also, you know, another one is like retirement because there's all of a sudden a lack of structure and, you know, the consistency and routine you used to have is not there. And then COVID, you know, brought this up for people too. So there's these like these typical things I see when we have a, a shift in our change or routine, like travel or health issues, or, you know, there's these common things that throw sleep off. Um, but, you know, typically with new parents, it's, it's a process, you know, and, and you, you kind of get used to sleeping with like, you know, a, a lighter sleep, right? Cause you gotta be aware of, <laughs> it's a different, it's a different um, type of sleep you, than you were doing before. Cause you, if they cry, you have to be, you know, mm -hmm. aware of it, but it's not, um, 
like it's temporary and you can change it. You can work with kids on their sleep. You can start to, um, you know, do behavioral things for kids. So there, there are things that really help. Um, and it's a good lesson to learn because the, the parents that I see tend to be like a little more flexible with their thinking. I know I don't need eight hours every night because I just went through six months of that, you know? Um, and so if you can let go of what you think it needs to look like, it's easier to make progress. Yeah. I think, uh, especially with like the, of how we, how we change as, as people, when we become parents or, you know, we get, or let me move in with somebody, you know, like those, mm-hmm. those patterns are all going to change and we we're going to evolve and we're going to adapt. And the body is like really good at being able to do that. And yeah, having the, you know, having the mindset and the understanding to like take back and rationally think about, okay, this, this huge things happened. It's now in my life, you know, like a lot of my energy and focus is now on this. Things are going to be different. It's my sleep and all these other types of routines are going to be different, but you know, we can adapt to that and we can certainly do different practices to kind of help along the way. And I think, yeah, putting some of those practices into, you know, young children to be able to, you know, work with, work with them as individuals and what they, what they might need and yourself, then you can certainly get through quite seemingly very difficult times. You mentioned about some of the like evidence-based therapies that you use. Can you give us some examples of, of that? Like what's been like, you know, what's really, got solid science science and evidence behind behind it when it comes to improving um, sleep and reducing chronic pain. Yeah. So there's two main therapies that I have kind of touched on is um, for sleep. Um, what I use is, is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. And it's um, yeah, the research is really great. So it, it shows, I think, um, like the average is something like 70 to 80% of people or of, of, um, of people get better. So that's really high for therapy, you know, and typically we're talking about between four to eight sessions. So it's really short term. And just to give you like a little overview of what CBTI looks like is, um, so we have people keep the sleep diary, as I had mentioned, and then there's a set of rules and I can just give you like a quick overview if that would be helpful. Certainly, please. Um, so the kind of things we're talking about are not having a clock in the bedroom. Um, so that helps to detach like that thought process of how long do I have? And we don't, if we set an alarm and we have it somewhere else, when you can't see it, we'll still wake up at the same time, but we don't need the marker of time. Um, Making sure that we use the bed only for sleep. So that means no reading, watching TV in bed. So we're not opposed to those things before bed, um, just not in bed. So we're trying to create an association. The bed is for sleep. Um, And then the idea of um, if you can't sleep, get up and get out of bed. So lying in bed is kind of the worst thing you can do when it comes to sleep. You want to have as little time in bed awake that, um, that you can manage. So, you know, give yourself 15 to 20 minutes of trying to sleep. Um, But that's it. That's the maximum. Um, waking up at the same time every day, no matter what, 
um, and going to bed at approximately the same time or later. So we're not like when I work with people, I set a window and that's their window and they can go to bed later, but they still have to wake up at the same time. And if they get less sleep, they get less sleep. Um, what trying... is, sorry, just a quick question there. What, yeah. when you, when you recommend people not to, it makes total sense to me now. I've never really thought about it, but obviously the longer you stay that you, you lie there looking at the ceiling, the more frustrating you're going to get. And if there's a clock in the room as well, it's just going to, you know, send that into overdrive. But what would you recommend people do then if they're like 15, 20 minutes and they can't get to sleep, they're lying in bed. Like what would you, what would you recommend they go and do? So I'm, you know, pretty open with this. I mean, any kind of quiet activity. So, um, there's a couple of things that aren't helpful, like work, like if you're working, it just kind of tends to, you know, kind of spin your brain up, um, in a more negative way or, you know, anything that's more, um, like stimulating is not ideal, but like any quiet, quiet activity reading, even watching TV, as long as it's like a light, easy, um, something that's light and easy, um, you know, sometimes people like to like knit or, you know, something, do a puzzle, stuff like that. Um, it's kind of individual, but really it could be anything as yeah. long as it's not a stressor, like don't pay bills, right. Because you can <laughs> get really stressed. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of things that people might not, not think are okay are actually okay. The, the difference is you don't want to do those things in bed. So find somewhere else that is separate from the bed, kind yeah, of its, its own little space. Yeah. It's like what, you know, what type of nervous system do you want to be really using before bed? You know, you're going to go, go watch a thriller or you're going to right. go and watch David Attenborough talk about fish. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's going to be more beneficial for you. And, you know, I think about transitions in, in my day, like I like to have a transition from, breakfast family time in the morning to coming down into my office to you know, get focused in, into work you know because it's you know only going to benefit me to get the best out of my time when i when, when i can do that so i have like a coffee and i like spend a few minutes like breathing and just like then i come downstairs and, that, and i'm in this mode and then the same when i finish up and i want to go upstairs i transition yeah. and i feel like I get, i'm pretty lazy with this because i get into when i get into a show i'm not really into it and then i won't watch anything for like five months so I'm into a show at the moment. So I'm like, mm -hmm. I, kids are go to bed pretty asleep by like eight o'clock. And then like, I like to watch a, watch a couple of shows, but I don't like doing that because I know that it affects my sleep and it affects my day the next day. So I'm tr trying to cut it out. So I'm trying to transition using, you know, like different things. Like my wife and I will read books. We'll talk about different stuff. We'll, you know, just sit there, have maybe a glass of wine and look at the mountains, you know, like it's, uh, did you recommend these like transitional periods rather than like going from, you know, your day straight into like straight into sleep or is it the same when you wake up like this bit more of like a a little bit more of a dance into the next phase of your day i i really love that and in particular one of the cbti um rules is to have a buffer zone one to two buffer hours zone. yeah um and in the, i think it helps in the morning that's not you know that doesn't have to be part of cbti but yeah it you know, especially in the morning, um, what can help also is getting sunlight, you know, direct sunlight and kind of that cue for your brain. Hey, it's light. It's time to be awake. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that those transitions are really important because I see a lot of people who are, you know, really, you know, hard workers and they're working, working until 11 o'clock and then they're 
you know, like, why can't I fall asleep at 1130? Well, you know, that's a, that's a big ask for your brain to just stop and then put that away. So we do need that. I think we need that. Um, You know, I think the one thing a lot of people do also think though, is TV is not good before bed. And, you know, what I really think is, well, it depends, right? Because um, a nature documentary, just like what you were saying, is is really relaxing for some people. Mm-hmm. And if that can help you to kind of let go of your day in a, in a way where, you know, just sitting there quietly doesn't, um, do that. Because, you know, sometimes if you're trying to sit there quietly, you can get more and more frustrated. It depends on the person and on the day. But, you know, I think something like that actually can be helpful um again as long as you're not doing it in bed um and you know having that separation but you know i i really do think some certain types of things can be helpful in winding down like that yeah i think for me it's a compounding effect like you know if i if i'm doing that every night or five nights a week like it's compounding my brain is confused and it's you know it's it's having to get used to that transition that i'm choosing for like those five days but when it's like just a couple of days a, a week with a cut you know with like two or three days in between it's very very different because you now you were touching on like you said uh people are working till 11 o'clock at night and then they expect to fall asleep at 11 30. we have to be thinking about what the what the body is doing and what it has to do to to, to put you in that different nervous system you know it's the you know yeah. it's having to actually you know reduce and break down a lot of hormones and neurotransmitters that are you know flooding around the body then it has to start ramping up the production of other ones which has to go around the body you know and it's not like it's not obviously not like a light switch these things have to have time to be able to manufacture and if you're somebody that does like work a lot till quite late you know you it's going to be difficult for your body to be able to like shut that down and say you've got like the screens going on like until quite late at night and yeah, it's, it's, it's just a tricky thing for the body to do. I was going to ask you, just kind of just kind of coming up to like the 50 minute point here. And I, I don't want to, there's so many questions I've got about sleep. I think we should just get you back on so we don't miss out on any other things. But I want to talk to you about like sunlight and exposing your face, your eyes, your body to yeah. sunlight to help um, your brain and your body like regulate kind of like with the sun and the, and the moon and the darkness to help you sleep better. Yeah. So, you know, we're supposed to be able to do that. That's look at the circadian rhythm, right? Like the cues that your body has, um, that it's, it should be starting to get sleepy. Like, so at night, as the sun goes down and it gets darker, we're supposed to, you know, uh, release more melatonin at that time, which gives you that cue. Hey, it's, it's time for sleep. Um, you know, and, for a lot of people with insomnia, that's not happening so well at night. Um, so morning, you know, getting outside, getting that direct sunlight does help. It does really give your brain that cue, you know, even as little as like 15 minutes in the morning to, you know, just give yourself that, you know, reminder it's daytime. Um, I'm supposed to be awake. It's okay. Even if you're really tired, you didn't sleep great. That still helps. So the more that you can do that, you know, keep your wake time consistent, get a little, you know, light in the morning, it's helpful. It's important. Yeah, there's some super strong research in regards to getting outside, like within the first hour of waking up. I know yeah. for me, 
after listening to a really cool podcast about that that exact thing okay. uh, and you know i live in a part of the world where like at 6 a.m for the last month and a half it's been like you know beautiful sunshine outside and blue skies so when my son decides to get up at like 5 55 or 6 a.m or whatever we just like go straight outside pretty much get naked and say hi to the sun and do some stretching and just like be out there for like you know 10 to 15 minutes just to like begin begin the day with that type of exposure and it just makes me think obviously that would have been a very normal situation for you know humans 100 200 years ago um so yeah i think that's a really powerful really powerful practice and it's again it's a good transition it's like hello to the day and it's just spending that 5 10 15 minute period allowing your body to you know gently go from being you know kind of unconscious in darkness to you know waking up in the morning getting prepared for the day i after doing that for like a week and a half i def i felt like a 30 percent increase in my energy throughout the day like mm. it was i felt it real quick and there was no doubt that it was that early exposure that was was really doing it for me um yeah i have so many questions in regards to chronic pain as well and like what's important to know i think we should get you back on and talk about that because I, yeah. I don't want to rush it. It's such an important point because so many people are suffering from chronic pain. And I think it would be really good to, to crack down on what people should know about their pain and what they, when they should be looking at like emergency care or when they could be really looking to work with a psychotherapist to talk about you know, traumas and pain and, how, how, and sleep and how that's all connected. I don't want to rush that because that's a very, very um, important, valuable topic. So we'll get you back on to talk about that. So where can people connect with you and learn more about your awesome work in DC? So, um, yeah, they can, they can go to my website, dcmetrotherapy.com. And, um, you know, we're a DC based practice, um, you know, DC, Maryland, Virginia, um, you know, some of us are working in other places as well. So it's worth asking. Um, and then more recently I created like an online course, um, for chronic pain for people to engage that don't, you know, can't access therapy. Um, and I'm going to be working on one for sleep too. So I'm excited about that, um, as well. So for people who, you know, aren't necessarily able to get therapy or aren't in that area. Do you work remotely with people? Can people have sessions with you on the internet? So yes, but um, because there's, I'm a licensed therapist, so there's licensing guidelines um, from state to state. So there's usually when somebody, if somebody contacts us, we just try to do a little research on those, the where they're located and the licensing rules. So sometimes in other places, but yes, we do a big, a large chunk of what myself and the other therapists do is, is teletherapy okay awesome well that's great well i'm going to make sure that um people can connect with you in the show notes are you on social media as well is there, is there a place i can send people um yes so instagram um dc.metro.therapy mm, um is a good one um facebook i'm not as active but it's there too <laughs> um instagram is more active yeah i feel like it's the same for a lot of people these days instagram yeah. where it's at um well, Annie, honestly, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about all those amazing topics. So important. Everybody sleeps. Everyone's got a relationship with pain and trauma is kind of, you know, everyone's got a relationship with trauma as well. So I think what we've spoken about today is relatable to everyone on the planet. So I really appreciate 
you coming on talk to me on the show and just what you do out there like I, I i think these type of therapies the connection with the sleep the trauma i had a really interesting conversation with another psychotherapist last week who is talking more about like critical therapy and and talking just talk just taking the psychotherapy just 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 evolving it changing it like making it more like about the embodied person and their whole experience rather than like a narrow focus on, on one particular aspect so happy that you're pulling all of these really important aspects together it's awesome so yeah thank you very much for being on the show i really appreciate your time annie thank you so much for having me and i'm be really excited to come back excellent yeah we'll certainly get you back on the show that's there's no doubt about that um but yeah that's it for this episode um on true hope cast the official podcast of true hope canada i'll make sure that there are links in the show notes so you can connect with annie and uh and uh, see and learn a little bit more about about what she's doing over there in dc dc metro sleep and psychotherapy but that's it leave us a review on itunes if you're listening to on that but thank you very much for listening this is true hope cast the official podcast of true hope canada we'll see you next week <laughs>